Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Before we get started, I'd like to make a correction to the following podcast. I present a book by Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter called Mainlining Philly, Survival, Hope, and Resisting Drug Addiction. During the podcast, I mistakenly call it Maintaining Philly. So thank you for understanding my mistake, and let's look forward to the interview with Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter, where we talk about her book, Mainlining Philly, Survival, Hope, and Resisting Drug Addiction. Hello, and welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. I am honored to have Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter back on the show. As a reminder, Dr. Utter is a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with individuals diagnosed with both substance use disorders and severe illness. Dr. Utter is very passionate about working with individuals and families who have been impacted by drug and alcohol addiction, as both her mother and father have struggled with addiction throughout their lives. In April of 2020, she released her first book, Maintaining Philly, Survival, Hope, and Resisting Drug Addiction, which came from her desire to share her story and instill hope. Thank you, Dr. Utter, for joining me again on this. I don't even know. what It's It's not really winter in Ohio right now. It's kind of somewhere between spring and winter. I don't know about Philadelphia, but I imagine it's pretty similar, huh? Yeah, it was it was um, almost 70 degrees here yesterday. That's amazing. You know, I'll and take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. And it's like uh, 46 today. So it's a little it's a little weird. <laughs> So let's talk. I, I'd like to ask about your book. I, I want, I'm kind of going right there because you were inspired to write it based on your experience. And so tell me your story. I mean, I, I love to hear about other people's story and just where they've been and, and just the impact now that I know because of what you experienced that now you're turning around as you said in the last podcast, you know, you had no intention of initially being a clinical psychologist, but you are and you're changing lives. And I really want others to be impacted by by your knowledge and your hope as well. Yeah, so the book, um, kind of like my story last time about, you know, not knowing that I would end up being um, a psychologist. It was the same thing with the book. I initially started to write it for myself. Just as a recollection of accounts, I thought it would be cathartic for me um, and actually help me with with some healing. Obviously, when you go through a, a clinical psychology program, it's it's very heavily recommended that you participate in therapy. So I had I had done therapy before, but I felt like I had more that I wanted to get out. Um, so I started to write the book again, chronological series of events for myself, and then. 
as I started to write it in conjunction with, you know, seeing patients and, and doing my clinical work, I really felt compelled to share it. And it was really, really hard for me because I worked my whole life hiding my personal life, um, hiding my, you know, the struggles that my parents had. And I didn't want people to know that I came from the family that I did or certain aspects of my family. Um, So I always would be very well put together, um, always wanted to please people or impress people. So I always worked really hard in school, Um, you know, just wanted to kind of cut off that part of my life and be looked at as somebody that was successful because I always felt like the association with my parents was negative on me. Oh, you know, her parents, you know, they, they're junkies, you know, you know, they're losers. So, you know, what do you think Jerry Lynn's going to be? So I worked really, really hard to kind of dissociate myself from that. Um, And I started to see people that were similar to me. And there's so many books out there, which are great about addiction from the perspective of the person who's struggling with addiction. But I I don't think there's enough out there about people like me. I was a very close family member of someone who was addicted. I'm a child of parents who struggled with addiction. And I feel like that perspective isn't shared enough because there's a lot of people like me. So I wrote the book. Um, in April of 2020, I released it, you know, electronically via Kindle. And then in February of last year, 21, it came out via hard copy and it's been, um, it's been really cool and it's been a great experience, but it's still, it still gets every interview I have gets me thinking. Um, and I feel like I continue to learn more things about myself, but at the same time, um, really I've, I've grown that sense of community, like writing the book and hearing people reach out to me and say, Hey, like I had, I have an uncle or a, a parent, or even I've had parents that reached out to me who have adult children. And it's, it's nice to know that I'm not alone, but yes. it's also nice to, to help other, or to make it feel like my story can help someone else. I, I was just thinking that when you were talking that you had to feel that feeling like I'm not alone because we could say that about anything that affects us, it affects our mental health, where it's so often we could be talking about depression or anxiety or substance um, use and yet feel like, you know, we're the only one that's experiencing that. But I completely agree with you as a pediatrician. We often are not really dealing with the family, specifically children that are affected. And so I'm grateful that you also are sharing your story in that way because it, it is reaching more and more people. And it's it's amazing, isn't it, when you do tell your story that people just come out of the woodwork and you're like, <laughs> hey, you know, yeah. And, and then, you know, you learn from each other. It's so funny that that you say that because I was I was it was on television or was an interview or something and I was talking about the book and I got a phone call and 
it was from the, the woman that I buy cosmetics from at Bloomingdale's at the counter. And she's like, I almost fell off my seat because and she, you know, very successful, like, you know, manages all these people. I mean, beautiful person inside and out. And she literally spilled her guts to me. And I've known her in, in that type of capacity for five, six years. I never knew. And then she told me her whole story. And she's like, I saw you and I never knew. Or people who read it that that I would just, you know, because again, it's not like I, I, I talked about it a lot. We're just like, I never knew. And I feel it's almost like they um, immediately feel like there's this connection and they can share with you their stuff. So it's, it's definitely made me feel good self-servingly knowing that I'm not alone, but also knowing that I could, I could be that support um, to someone else because with mental health issues, I don't, whether it's, you know, substance use issues. Jews are, are very, very stigmatized, but depression, anxiety, trauma, um, there's so much of it to where we're ashamed yes. and we don't want to talk about it. Right. And, and there's something wrong with me um, or especially with children and even adults, but with depression, you're lazy, you're unmotivated, yes. you're not working hard. And it's like, if they only understood that it's not a matter of laziness, it's, it's literally like not having, not feeling worthy enough and feeling so bad about yourself that you don't even have the capacity to get up and take a shower. Right. Um, so, you know what I mean? It's, it, it, it's so over, it's overlooked in adults. And it, I feel like it's especially overlooked with adolescents because they're already aliens, right? They're already yeah. like, you're already giving me a hard time and you're just being more of a jerk because you're not doing anything you're supposed to do. Let's take a deeper look as to, to why that's the case and, and, and talk about it. So it's same with substance use, you know, disorders and, and, and alcohol and, and having the hard conversations with your kids starting young. And when I mean young, I mean, before middle school, middle school's great, but start young and be honest and have that real and raw conversation about your kid. If addiction runs in the family, if you've experimented, um, because your kid will make that connection and, and I'll be like, okay, my mom's human, right? Like I can, she's done this. She maybe can relate to me and make the conversation easier to have. Don't shield your child, right? Don't shield them because from, from it expose, even though it's hard, expose them to it and educate them so that when you're not there at the keg party, the raging keg party that's taking place sophomore yes. year and everybody's like doing pills or, smoking weed or drinking that you gave them all the information and the tools and hope that they use it. And even, you know, you mentioned like young children, it, it brings up, I have a family who the one parent came to me and said, you know, we're separated now because the other parent is now in rehab and she has a couple boys and she's really trying to help the boys understand why number one, the parents aren't together. And number two, what is going on with, you know, the other parent being in rehab, but also working with them in what they experienced when that parent was in the home. And I was really glad that she brought it up to me because even to even to the pediatrician or your doctor 
people have a hard time letting, you know, asking for help or stepping up. And and you're right, it's because of stigma. It's because they they have a sense of self worth that they're they're feeling already is impacted, which we know isn't isn't a feeling. It is. We know that. And so for whatever reason, but I I really want to encourage people that it's it's okay to not feel okay and it's okay to let your you know let someone know and then take it further if you need to you know from your primary care to someone like yourself who's a clinical psychologist because there it's it's like treating anything else we all have we talk about being healthy and i remember a pediatric psychiatrist once said we all have mental health which is but whenever we say the word mental health we always think of badness and yes. but but mental health is really just about taking care of our 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 thoughts and taking care of how we are managing our experiences and whether it's something traumatic or you know in in our life or whether it's something good and so it, it it's such a balance and i think communicating within the family and then, you know, seeking help is, is so important. So tell me a little bit about when you were home and, and as a child and some of, you know, what you experienced in a way that, you know, has really changed you and developed who you are today. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the book is an interesting read because it reads like, um, it reads like a movie, <laughs> um, kind of like a dramatic, you know, movie. But um, when I was a kid, you know, we always talk about psychologists, the first five years of life um, help to develop personality. Cause you know, we have our, our, you know, good friend Sigmund Freud, who talks about personality and how that comes to light. And, and you know, that's defined within the first five years, but then largely, you know, you really want to have consistency in your, in your life or as a parent, you want to be able to give your child consistency, you know, for as long as you can, right. Until they're ready to kind of move on, especially when they're, when they're very little. And I didn't have, I didn't have much consistency. So, um, when I was born, I wasn't, you know, I was the first only child. My mother came from, um, Italian American family. Um, so they were, you know, very hard workers, um, wanted my mom to marry Italian and continue that, that trajectory. My mom was a hairdresser. My father was, you know, Irish and German, um, and was not Italian and, you know, grew up in a really tough area of Philadelphia called Kensington and got involved at a young age. He was one of eight. Um, and I could go back into his family history in drugs, you know, starting to, to, to abuse drugs. And, you know, by the time he was in his late teens, he was shooting heroin. Wow. So, yeah, when he met my mom, he had gotten, you know, he was in and out of trouble with the law. When he met my mom, he was still in active addiction. And, you know, despite my grandmother, the Italian grandmother saying, you know, this guy's nothing but bad news. My mom pursued that and they got married and then waited because my dad said to my mother, I don't want to have children because I'm, I'm a mess. Like I can't, I don't want to do this. And 
after five years, they had me that the Italians broke him down. He started to work a legal job for my father it was dealing drugs. So there was a lot okay. of drug dealing at a high level. So we had a lifestyle when I was younger. I don't remember the lifestyle when I was that young, three, four, then he goes away to prison. Wow. And when he goes away, he turns this illegal empire over to my mother and says, you have to continued it to sell, I, you know, back then it was methamphetamine, cocaine, and, and marijuana. My mom's like, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do this. My mom ends up with a, a gentleman much younger than her, 10 or 11 years, who, who, who was associated with that life. You know, my father knew him and they ended up starting a romantic relationship while my dad was away. So he ends up getting out during that time, I was like four and five. I felt very, um, if I if I look back as a kid, I felt very unsafe. Like when my kids are with me, I want my kids to feel safe. Like my mom has me, she's taking care. I felt the opposite. I felt very scared a lot and very unsafe because my mom started to drink and use benzodiazepine. She was doing Valium and stuff like, and so did this this guy, Eddie, she was with, and we were always like out. Like I felt like I was at this one's house or that one's house. And I felt scared. So, and it was traumatic. And and the Italian family at that point had cut my mother off, but my father who was incarcerated got a hold of my mother's sister and said, you have to get Jerry Lynn. She's like on the streets. It's not good. Like I will pay you from here, you know, from jail, do what I please take her. And it was, it was, I remember walking along in the bad neighborhood and my aunt comes with my uncle and grabs me. And my mother goes to go in the car with my aunt and my aunt goes, I'm sorry, I can't, you cannot go with me. I'm just here to take Jerry Lynn. And at that moment, I felt great relief because I knew like where my next meal was coming from. I, I loved my aunt and my uncle, but then I felt very sad because then I worried about my mom. So about at a mom. young age, yeah, our role switched, right? Like from a young age, it, it went, I felt like I had to take care of her. And that followed me throughout my life. So I stayed with my aunt for a few months. My father re- asked my aunt to write a letter to the judge because he got in trouble on drug charges saying, please release, you know, my father's name was Jerry, please release, you know, Jerry Utter early um, so that he can take care of his daughter because there's no one to take care of his daughter. And the judge granted it. And I remember being in court that day. I'm a kid, five years old. And it was so weird because I was living with my aunt. I wasn't seeing my mom really. And it's like when court came, I was just handed over to my dad. So like, where's the consistency? Right. And then my dad took me, right? And I felt okay with my dad and I loved my dad because he, he got his life back together. But I oh, I didn't feel safe. Like you said, how was it as a kid? I didn't feel safe. And I always worried. And the word anxiety throughout my life up until recently was not a part of my, I didn't understand it. Kids today, I feel like understand this more. Correct. And I am. Um, and it, and it, it, and it demonstrated itself. You're going to appreciate this in feigning spells. Oh yeah. Because it affects the body. I mean, we, I talk all the time about the mind body connection. So started to, I got, I, I had, I finally got diagnosed with vasovagal syncope at mm-hmm. 12, 
but I started passing out as a toddler. And they thought I had all different kinds. They thought she has leukemia, get it. she has epileptic seizures, she has hypoglycemia. And it finally, I was finally diagnosed. And I and the doctor said the trigger is stress. And I would pass out constantly up until I, I started to menstruate when I was older. Some, something happened hormonally and it got a little, a little bit better, but also I became more independent. I wasn't at, you know, I could take care of myself. So the more independence I got, the more I think safe the less- you felt. Yeah. So that's how I felt to answer your question. As a kid, I felt very, um, I felt like the only person I could depend on was me. And I learned at a young age to, um, to fall in line with whoever was taking care of me at the time. How did the adults or caretakers in your life, did anyone at any point explain to you what was going on with your mom? What happened with your dad? Or do you feel like they kind of shielded that information from you as well? You know, to, as a protective thing. I mean, I, I could see how that could happen. But also not knowing, you know, you kind of make your own connections. So if you don't understand why someone doesn't feel good, for example, and they don't say this is why then you start thinking, well, maybe they're mad at me or maybe I I did something yeah. to make them sick. So was anybody communicating with you about what what was going on around you or were you kind of left to yourself to come up with your own conclusions? I don't remember my my mother's sister like sitting me down and talking to me. I I remember seeing it kind of like, I was left to my own, but I would hear them see very loud Italian family. So like, even if they weren't talking directly to me, I, I was always all ears and listening to the conversation. So I had an inkling what, what really helped me. And I know this is going to sound crazy. I've dissected this. Maybe a part of this is idealization as a self, as a, as a, as a coping strategy for me to be able to forgive my parents. But my father, when he got out of prison, um, he started to educate me five and six years old about addiction. And he described it as a monster that lived inside my brain. I remember he telling me that. Yeah. Yeah. And he would use his life, but how his poor choices impacted me. Like, Jerry Lynn, do you remember that time we were living in a two-room efficiency when I got out of jail? Do you remember that? And like, you know, you didn't really have anything. He used that was because I didn't get my education and I sold drugs. And so like they would talk to my father would talk to me on this level where I could understand. And he was a very charismatic, charming person. And he ever had like a conversation with somebody and they're like, wow, like they just draw you in. You can just kind of sit oh, yeah. there. That was my father. He was very talented that way. So he, I give him a lot of credit because he's the one who really sat me down and started to explain why this mess was happening around me and even explain my mom's drinking and this is what happened. And, and so I credit him with the educate, with the psychoeducation and really starting at a young age to explain to me what the risks were and how I suffered the consequences of their addiction and explaining that to me in ways I could understand. Like we've taken your birthday money because- we couldn't pay the bills because I don't have a good job because I'm a felon. Like just, he explained it in a way 
that I understood. The Italian side of the family, I do remember, this is a funny story. Again, for me, humor is a coping strategy, but I have it in the book. There's a section where I was at my grandmother's house, you know, because my aunt and everybody had had taken me. We're visiting my grandmother. And I kept, they kept saying my dad was at the fat farm when he was in jail. Your dad's at the fat farm. And I'd be like, oh, okay, dad's at, dad's at the fat farm. My dad was six, almost six three and he was a, a big guy. Well, when he got out, he was fatter. So I remember turning around to my grandmother and I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you said he was at the fat farm. Like he was going to lose weight, but he's bigger. So like, that's oh, how they man. told me at five that my father was in jail. He's at the fat, fat farm, farm losing weight, but he got fatter. <laughs> so because he stopped using meth, right. And, you know, living this crazy lifestyle. So like they did try think like my grandmother did tell me things like that, but at the end of the day, they weren't very good at being um, cautious when they spoke. And, and they, and that, that's a part of what I think helped to develop um, some of my struggles because I didn't, I didn't want to be judged the way they were amongst the family. I don't want to be looked down upon. So I intuitively learned how to say or do things right. Like that aligned with what I knew that people liked. Based As on a way what for you're them already to, hearing. Right. For them to accept me. Cause I didn't want them to think that I was, you know, like my parents because they talked so badly about my parents. Aww. So where, yeah. what is your relationship now with your family? So it's not um, my dad, unfortunately. Um, So my father, very interesting character in 1985, got out of jail and stopped, never touched a drug again. That's excellent. So he, yeah. So he was great for a long time, has a brilliant idea when I was 12. So seven years later to buy a bar in the middle of the worst name, one of the worst neighborhoods in Philadelphia, Kensington, and my maiden name is Utter. So he names the bar Utter Nonsense, and that's exactly what the bar was. Every character you can imagine came in and out of this bar. We were in the middle of a drug-infested area, and um, things with he and my mom never looking back and talking, getting a chance to talk to my parents as an adult. They never kind of rekindled rekindled any type of romantic relationship. So dad stepped out on my mom again for the hundredth time because he had a history of that and started drinking. And he became somebody I didn't know anymore because, you know, he started to drink and he bought this bar. And my dad always talked to me about how it runs in the family. And I know he stopped and he cleaned up. So there was a period when I was in high school to where I didn't talk to my father. It was either my sophomore or junior year of high school until I graduated from college. I cut him off because all he was doing was drinking and he was with somebody that, you know, I, of course it's easier to blame the person he's with. So I was just angry and I was upset and I cut him off. My mom ended back up with the guy that she was with Eddie, the guy that she was with when my dad was in jail the first time and had a child. So I have a 27-year-old sister who's, you know, 15 years younger than me. That's Eddie's child that I ended up adopting when she was 10 because Eddie and my mom started to abuse opioids and then became addicted to heroin. So today, years later, my sister's 27. I adopted her at 10. Um, My mom struggled uh, and it was actually 
basically abusing fentanyl because that's something that's in Ohio. It's, it's in Philadelphia. It's all over the country now. The last time my mom used fentanyl was December of, uh, right around December of 21. So my mom has over a year clean wow. and she lives with me. Yeah, she lives with me now and she's doing great. There's oh, that's still, good. there's still weird dynamic, right? Cause I still have never felt like I still, still like, I feel like I'm, I'm her mom. But the cool thing is I have two kids, seven and 10, and I get to see my mom with my kids. And that's the part that's super rewarding because I get to see like her be like a good parent or a version of a good grandparent. Yes. And it makes me happy. So, And she makes her happy because she's getting like another chance kind of. Yes. My dad passed away in 2010 from pancreatic cancer. So we oh. finally, we reckon, yeah, we reconciled. Sorry. Yeah. It's, we reconciled when I got out of undergrad because I wanted to stick it right up his rear end because Oh, Jerry Lynn, I want you to be the first on my side of the family to graduate from college. And he always was really big on education, even though my dad dropped out of school in ninth grade, was severely dyslexic. And he always education, staying away from drugs, putting your family first, you know, being spirit was things that he talked about that he just didn't really do too well. So I, we ended up reconnecting after undergrad. And my father, this is funny and super interesting. My dad ended up leaving the woman he was with and moving in with me to help me raise my mother's daughter. Wow. And so how did that go? Awesome. My dad, my dad carried a lot of guilt for how my mom became addicted to opioids because I think he blamed himself because of how poorly he treated her. She went back with this guy, Eddie, they ended up, you know, it just, so I think he he felt bad about all that. So and then he finally left the woman he was with, dried up, wasn't wasn't drinking as as much, was drinking at night, but was functioning more now, functioning alcoholic, if you will, and helped me with with my sister. And they um, he actually we had to become I had to become her kinship foster parent first because I went through and I I formally adopted her, and my father was her foster father through, through the system. And, and you were all together and we're all together in my apartment, right? Cause I'm in my twenties. I'm young at this point. And my sister, her name's Dominique. My, um, she calls my dad F squared cause it's her foster father. So F to the second power F squared. Yes. Foster and they power. had this, yeah. And they had this great relationship and it was awesome. And, and he helped me a lot and she loved him and her father, Eddie, um, was in and out of her life. Sadly, devastatingly, it'll be four years this August. He died of a fentanyl overdose. Oh no. So my sister being his only child had to take him off of life support after he overdosed on fentanyl and he's passed away. My dad passed away. My mom, um, my mom's clean and sober and um, she's living her best life. She gets her hair done. She gets, you know, makeup all the time. I mean, she's just first time in her life. I think she's actually happy. It's amazing hearing about your parents and their characteristics because they sound like really wonderful, cool people. And yet, and that's why I think 
you're so cool. And, you know, and, and I just enjoy talking to you and hearing your story and the impact you're now having on others because of what you've learned and shared. But, but it, it, it is, I mean, your parents sound so wonderful. And yet, like you said, it's, everybody just has this vision of what people that are, um, that use, you know, or abuse substances as not being, you know, that's, it's, there's that stigmata again, that they must not be good people. You know, I'm putting my hands in quotes, but nobody on the podcast can see me say, do that. But, but your parents are great. They really are. And, um, and, you know, I hear that in the story that you, that you tell. And so it's, it's really wonderful. And yet at the same time, um, you know, sad just you know when you think about how much using can affect the lives of their life how it affected their life and then trickled down into yours but yeah. but they really sound great and and I and I I got a sense of that when we were talking last time about how to talk to kids and that relationship that parent child relationship and I can see where you're coming from because no matter what was going on in your life, it sounded like your parents really wanted to maintain that and teach you as much as they could. Did you ever at any point find yourself in a situation where, wow, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm worried about being addicted or, you know, how was it that you didn't, come about using substances? Like, what do you think was, you know, helped you in that aspect? Because it, I wouldn't have been surprised if I was hearing this story from anyone that, that then the child became um, a substance user as well. Yeah. I, I have analyzed, dissected, dissected this, thought about this a hundred times. And, and I'm going to give you an answer and then I'm going to add on to it. So if, if I look at it intellectually, because, you know, I have to, we, we have these coping mechanisms, right? People, they intellectualize, they rationalize things, they denial, regression, like all that stuff we have, right? And I, I looked at the neurobiology of addiction and I looked at what research has been done and it's you know, two factors weigh in. It's your genetic predisposition. We'll check. I got the check, check, check. I mean, that's all over, right? We know my, my family struggles. And the other thing is external kind of stimuli, like what happens in the outside world, what's your world like? And at some point in time, kids are going to be faced with using, I don't care what it is. I don't care where you live. You are right. It's not right. Not the neighborhood. Sometimes the ritziest, you know, white picketed fences with the $1.5 million, those kids got more access than, than some kids in the hood do. So it's like, doesn't matter. Um, I, I had both of those checks, right? Like I had, I definitely had the genetic predisposition and my, my mom used with my friends. So my mother was so overprotective. And I know this sounds crazy that she, and she was, sad and depressed and lonely because her and my dad were going through this divorce. She would say, Oh, 
Jerry Lynn, I don't want you to go to a keg party. I was really with my mom. They're having a keg tonight, mom, but I'm not going to drink. No, bring the keg here. Bring all your friends here. So it got to the point where my mom was using with my friends, older siblings. That's how she got introduced to opioids and pills. Okay. But so, so to answer your question, I had the make the perfect storm to be addicted. I should be addicted statistically based upon my external experiences and my genetics, my saving grace. The way that I have translated it is early education. My parents didn't practice what they preached, but two things my parents did. Number one, my father talked to me at a level I can understand and didn't use his bad choices in life and brush them under the rug. He He didn't make excuses. He taught me. He used his mistakes to teach me. Number one, what my mom did that was excellent was during all of the crazy, at times when she was good, she would talk about getting help from a therapist. So when my parents were going through the divorce at age two, my mom put me in core counseling right away. So I had early education, my parents talking to me openly and honestly, and I was introduced to therapy in the eighties at a time where it was not popular and taught that it's okay because mental health is just like your physical health. Every year you get a checkup, you're going to get your teeth whitened. You're going to get, you know, preventative medicine is pushed in every other disease space. Why is it not pushed for our mental health? You don't need to wait until you become diagnosed with, you know, depression or anxiety to get help. Look at it like car maintenance. You got to get the oil changed. I put myself in and out of therapy throughout my life because I may feel a little down. I may feel a little stressed. Well, guess what? Instead of hitting the bottle, because have I thought about it? Yeah, I know that's a monster. So what do I do? I use the back of my insurance card and I and I get back into therapy because I want to get help before it gets out of hand. And we have to start to look at it that way. So I think that's what's helped me. I'm not super religious, though raised you know, Roman Catholic. And I do think I have some type of guardian angel because I really should, I, a lot, I feel like I should have went down that road and I have such strong resilience that I feel like I have to give it some type of divine, divine credit. Somebody has been looking out for me or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, you know, and I, I truly believe that. And I, and I appreciate that, that support. And you're, you're, you're right because like you said statistically but but you you broke that statistic and and early education discussion communicating and not being afraid to talk to the kids at the level developmental level that they understand i say it over and over again and i and it just it bears repeating because we always want to shelter. We want we don't we don't want to talk about the uncomfortable things with our kids. Or maybe we don't even want to talk about the uncomfortable things about ourselves, you know, which but your parents were willing to do that. They were willing to be vulnerable and talk to you and and be able to say, you know, these are the mistakes I made and hopefully you mm-hmm. can learn from them. As opposed to, you know, trying to just hide it, make excuses, push it under the rug, that kind of thing. And I like I 
truly believe like you do that for anyone in this situation, that is the key. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. how can people, I, I know I, I'm inspired now to go and read your book. And it, I think even the title, Maintaining Philly, I mean, it sounds like a movie to me and I'm not belittling it because I have chills right now. It, Your story is really amazing and it has a wonderful ending and your story is continuing. There's no end, but that chapter, you know, the ending of your, your book, the, the chapter that you're living right now, your mom is home, she's clean, she's, she's with your kids and, um, like you said, almost getting a second chance and then your relationship, you know, being able to share your relationship with her now. And because we all know too, when it does come to substance use, I had, I had a parent tell me that it's worse than cancer because mm-hmm. they're, they just don't feel like it's always something that could recur. And yet yeah. We, so we have to continue to educate, to continue to communicate and not be afraid to be vulnerable. Yeah. And, and talking to kids at each developmental stage, you know, it's, it's not like that one conversation you have that you dread, like it has to become a dinner conversation. Um, I have a seven and a 10 year old. And if she was here, you know, my daughter seven or my son's, they would tell you about the monster that lives inside their brain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and, and they know the whole, the whole, the whole spiel. People say, didn't that scare you? It didn't scare me. She she asked me last week, mom, show me, can you show me the monster that lives inside? Like she wanted a picture of it. So I had to explain to her, it's, it's not like a real monster, Natalie. It's, it's the reason why I use the word monster is because it makes you do bad things that you never thought that you would do. You know, it makes you like lie and cheat and, you know, does it, you know, so I, I kind of go down, down that road. Um, and that's another thing you said to, you know, people who use drugs do terrible things, but we have to not take that personally. Um, it's at what you're looking at are active signs of addiction. If you look at, you know, the statistical manual for psychiatric disorders, you will see, you know, that behaviors like cheating, lying, stealing, manipulating, that is symptomology of someone in active addiction. It is, they are not character traits. We're not talking about someone's personality or character. We're looking at someone in active addiction. So when I work with families, I always say to the family member, not the person who is addicted, how would you describe Joe before he became addicted, give me like five adjectives. And they would say, oh, he was funny. He was reliable. He was, um, you know, easy to talk to. So I said, that's, that's the Joe. That's really Joe. He's, that is Joe. That's Joe. This other, and my dad, again, not religious. And he would say like, I felt like when I was in active addiction that I was possessed because it wasn't me. I was doing things to support my habit and my addiction because that's the only thing I saw. And that's the only thing that mattered. It's not that they don't love or they didn't love me because if I believe that I was unlovable and which a lot of us do children of addicts, we believe we're unlovable and we're not worth it. If I believed that I was unlovable, it would have been a lot easier for me to go down that road. But I looked at it as they just couldn't love me the way that they wanted to because their first love was addiction. And was that a hard pill to swallow? Yes. Was I angry, pissed off, fought, screamed, argued with them for years? Yes. 
but it came to the point where I had to stop holding those feelings and that hate and that resentment because it was hurting me. So I had to get my own treatment and my own therapy so that I could let go and learn to forgive them as best as I could and understand knowledge is power. So that's the road I went. That's why I became a clinical psychologist because I, I was hungry to learn and understand why you're doing this to me. They weren't doing it to me on purpose. No. Right. I was caught up in the storm of their addiction. So when I started to learn about it, I was able to empathize and it allowed me, it gave me an outlet, right? The research and the knowledge gave me, allowed me to give them grace. Because without the knowledge, I wouldn't have forgiven them because there's plenty of family members out there that are like, boom, I'm done. My, to answer your question, my mother's family stopped talking to her years. Like she has not talked to her family in years because they were done, done because of how she acted in active addiction. And does part of me want to go like this to them? Yeah. But guess what? I got involved in that because I got sick because they would talk to me and I got sick and tired of hearing your mother's a piece of shit or, you know, your mother, your mother doesn't care. Your mother's a junkie or your, it's always your mother, your mother, your mother, your mother. And, and my mother could be all those things, but guess what? Like I'm sick of hearing you say it and you don't get permission to say it. Cause that's still my mom. So it got to the point where I cut them off and it's sad. We were this big, huge Italian family and we don't even, we don't even talk because they don't understand it, or maybe I don't understand them, but either way, at the end of the day, my loyalty lied with my mother and I took her back and it is what it is. And it's sad, but I don't know how we, how we got on that, but it's, and the book talks about that, how it just messes with, with the whole family. And, and the other really important thing is it's like the cancer analogy. When somebody gets treatment, that's the beginning. That's not the end. That's the beginning of the journey to continue to work on their recovery. And you have to work on it every single day. Yes, do they look better? Yes, are they clean today? But they have to work. It's hard work and they have to work on it. Addiction is a chronic relapsing midbrain disease. Chronic relapsing. It's not going to stop unless you work on it. And people will have a slip every now and then. And it doesn't mean you should be mad at them and never talk to them understand and educate yourself on the disease. But at the end of the day, create healthy boundaries for yourself. You know, I did, you know, with my parents and I said, I'm not going to talk to you until you're ready for help. When you're ready for help, you can call me at three o'clock in the morning at any street corner at any part of the city and I'll come pick you up, but we're going right to rehab. And I drew those boundaries and that's what helped me after years of enabling behavior, giving it money, listening to the stories, but you know, it's, you have to work on it. It, 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 wow. I mean, I have learned so much from you and just understanding, even as a pediatrician who has dealt with families that are very similar to your story. And I know that it's, it's helped me understand and be able to empathize better with these kids. And what I hear just to kind of summarize, so to speak, is early education, communication, 
getting the counseling or the therapy early on, preventatively, and throughout life, you know, when you need it, Mm -hmm. setting boundaries. And but at, at, at some points to being vulnerable, that builds resilience, because that's what they did for you. You are resilient because they were able to communicate and, and be honest and upfront, even as hard as it might have been. I, mm-hmm. you know what, I know as Absolutely. soon as we're done with this, I'm going to download the book. It, I, I think I can get it on Amazon. It's a main, it's mainlining. It's mainlining Philly. Just, just, just oh, say, mainlining you know, Philly. I read that wrong. I apologize. Oh my mainlining. No, 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 no. It's, a, it's okay. Yeah. I, Cause I know you'll have to like edit it, but it's mainlining off of, you know, the spiff off of when you mainline drugs. So I, we called it mainlining Philly. Wow. And, and okay. Mainlining Philly. And I will absolutely add that to our, um, you know, the, the show notes so people can can experience that. Thank you so much. I mean, just being, again, I use the word vulnerable to just share your story. And I know just like we were talking about when the book came out and people reached out, I know that there's many people across this country, across the world that are experiencing this. And I want to reiterate that do not be afraid to get help and do not, be afraid to communicate with your kids and talk about that monster because mm-hmm. they they're going to come up with their own stories and and fears and that might happen anyway but mm-hmm. you're going to make a big difference in their lives and change their trajectory and that statistic for them. Mm-hmm. Thank Absolutely. you again. Thank you thank you so much for having me Dr. Sarah. It's always nice talking with you. Well, I can't wait till we can do it again. Have, yes. have a great day. And thanks for listening to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. And please listen and follow wherever you like to uh, join your shows, whether it's Apple Podcast or Spotify. And let's grow up together. <laughs>